Hello and welcome to CMEC's podcast. I'm Charlotte Leslie, Director of CMEC, and today we're discussing a potential humanitarian and environmental time bomb sitting just off the coast of Yemen, and one that is receiving bizarrely little global interest or attention. The FSO Safer is a 45-year-old tanker, 362 metres long, that's a 1,200-footer, converted into a floating storage and offloading facility. That's the FSO bit. It's moored just off the coast of Yemen in the Red Sea. It holds almost one and a half million barrels of crude oil, and it's falling apart. Here to talk in detail about this potential impending catastrophe is Dr. Ian Rolby. Dr. Rolby is a recognised expert in maritime security, international law, hydrocarbons crimes, private security oversight and countering transnational crime. He is CEO of family firm IR Concilium with leading expertise in maritime and resource security. He's formerly a maritime crime expert for the United Nations and he's also an adjunct professor at the US Department of Defense's Africa Center for Strategic Studies. Dr. Rolby, may I call you Ian? Of course. Welcome. Thank you. Now, before we go into the detail of all this, can you just explain to us what happens if we do nothing and there is an oil spill? Absolutely. This spill will be enormous. It will be more than four times the size of the Exxon Valdez spill of 1989, whose effects we still feel today. And it will have an effect throughout the entirety of the Red Sea Basin. 1.14 million barrels of Marablite crude spilling into the Red Sea will not just be an environmental catastrophe, but it will be a humanitarian crisis of an incredible magnitude. There are a couple of concerns. First of all, we have a real concern about access to the port of Hodeida, because at the moment, millions of Yemenis are living on the brink of famine. And as recent news has indicated, an entire generation of Yemenis stand to be lost to this famine. This would be the quickest way to precipitate their death. That comes in two different forms. First, access to humanitarian aid through the port. And second, access to clean drinking water through the desalination plants on which much of the region relies. And just now, to remind our listeners, Hodeida is the port on the west coast of Yemen. Correct. It is the Red Sea port just a few miles to the southeast of the Safar. The Safar is off of Rasisa at the moment. That's where it has sat since 1988. And Hodeida is not far down the coast. And Hodeida is the main port for access to humanitarian aid into Yemen. And it is the main conduit through which the international community can help prevent the death of Yemenis from famine. And losing access to that port, either through the cleanup operation or the toxicity of the water and air surrounding the port, will cause a very rapid decline in the humanitarian situation within the country. And that is irrespective of any other measures that come into play, because access at the moment is primarily dependent on Hodaida. And that that is, I would say, the number one concern is the loss of human life that could spill out of this. And it's not just in Yemen. It also can be all along uh, the Red Sea coast, particularly as we look at the coming up of the winter circulation cycle. The Red Sea moves in different directions in different times. And right now we are transitioning into the, the winter cycle where it moves to the north, up the coast to the uh, Suez Canal and the Gulf of Aqaba. And if the spill occurs during that period, the oil will move immediately towards the Red Sea desalination facilities of Saudi Arabia, on which millions of people rely. 
And with desalination, there's usually a three-day lead time between when the plant goes offline and the water supply runs out. And so we are looking at a really catastrophic situation for life on land, much less the marine environment, which will also suffer catastrophic consequences that will take generations to even begin to recover and will never do so completely. And one of the key issues in the Red Sea is the coral system, which is the only coral system that seems impervious to sea temperature rise. And as we know, the ocean's water's temperatures are rising, and the Red Sea may be the key to sustaining marine biodiversity worldwide. And so if we lose that, we lose something that's vital, not just to the region, but to the entire world. And all of this comes with other concerns, you know, the the loss of economic activity from fishing, the loss of the fish populations, including 10 unique species of fish that could be destroyed, the loss of mangroves, and particularly around some of the Red Sea islands, the loss of marine and coastal tourism, on which several of the the coastal states have really invested a lot and, and sought to draw substantial amounts of income. So the spill coming from the software would affect an entire region, catalyze the deaths of as many as several million, and would leave a a really difficult picture for the entire littoral of the Red Sea for for decades to come. So we're looking at an absolute environmental and humanitarian disaster for everyone. How on earth has it got to this? If it's so disastrous, how can it have been allowed to reach the situation it has? Well, I I think, you know, it bears noting that we've asked that question a number of times this year. Look at what happened to Beirut. That was a situation that that essentially originated in 2013. Experts knew about it. People warned about it. It was not a secret to those who were working in, in issues relating to ammonium nitrate. And yet the explosion occurred and we're left wondering how it could have happened. Look at what happened in Mauritius. I was actually involved in that. And it's very sad to see that you know, on the 25th of July, a, a vessel ended up on a reef off of the coast of Mauritius and nothing was done, even though there were warnings to prevent a catastrophic spill of just a mere 8,450 barrels from the bunker tanks of that, that vessel. And two weeks went by between when the vessel landed on the reef and when the spill started to occur. And yet Mauritius is now staring down a generation of economic loss, as well as a catastrophic damage to its marine protected areas and unique marine ecosystem. And so again, there we're asking, how could this have happened? Well, the fact is that the marine environment and the maritime space writ large is crucial to life on land. 90% of world trade happens by sea, 97% of our communications and even this conversation right now are occurring through submarine cables. And yet it's often out of sight, out of mind. And so we do not prioritize it because our focus is often on life on land. And yet we don't recognize how much that life is dependent on the marine environment and the maritime world writ large. So We've had an ongoing challenge in Yemen of constantly trying to prioritize whatever crisis seemed most immediate. And as a result, the software has has gradually become a sort of sore spot in everybody's discourse around Yemen, but has never really become the focal point for, for solving what's at stake. And frankly, it's quite sad, but it's just a fact of life that we often are only able to deal at the moment, particularly amid this pandemic and amid all the challenges that we face with what's in front of us. And the software only has come up as being in front of us a few times, and it's never been resolved fully because it just seems too complicated. It is very solvable, and we we really need to solve it because the, the catastrophic fallout from not doing so 
will be far worse than any of the, the challenges we've faced thus far. It's going to seem extraordinary to many people listening that tragedies like the Beirut blast and the Mauritius spill were things that some people were warning about and saying, we've got to do something about this, and yet nothing happens and a tragedy occurs. Is there some fault in the systems of the international community to tackle these things? Or is it just a case of, if it isn't immediate, we don't really care? I'm not sure it's a a fault in the systems, but the systems are all reliant on human beings. And human beings are very typically and historically blind to the sea. We don't notice that 90% of our goods occur travel by sea. Go to any store in almost any country on earth, whether it's on the coast or landlocked, and you will find that it's hard to go shopping and not buy something that has traveled by boat. And that is something that we don't think about very often. And so if it's not part of our consciousness, it's not part of our prioritization in a day-to-day context, we don't necessarily look at it as being of vital import. And many have relegated the software to being an environmental issue. We don't recognize how much other issues, other, other factors are tied to it. And people don't understand how an oil spill could potentially disrupt human life. For those of us who don't live in an arid environment and don't live along particularly the Middle East coast, we don't recognize how important desalination is. Many have not even heard of desalination as being the mechanism through which drinking water is produced. And yet millions of people rely on desalination. As I said, they only have a three-day lead time on the supply. And so these sort of factors of, of what doesn't come into our daily consciousness of basic goods, you know, access for food, access for water, really can be overlooked quite easily. And then when you're dealing with human beings, you're always dealing with human um, prioritization. And so whether it's institutional in terms of the the, the systems of international uh, action, or it's it's just a feature of human life, I can't really say. But I think that we have to figure out a way to solve this problem, because the world desperately needs a win right now, and we can't afford another catastrophic loss. Thank you. You're listening to CMEX podcast. I'm Charlotte Leslie, and I'm talking to Dr. Ian Rolby about the dangers of the disintegrating oil tanker SFO Safa just off Yemen's coast. Ian, this is a potential catastrophe waiting to happen in a very complex region, mired and scarred by conflict. Could you just give us a bit of a guide as to the build up to this and what's been going on in the region? Absolutely. And I think there's kind of a challenge with this, because on the one hand, this is completely apolitical. There is nothing that will be political about the fallout of this, in that the spills effects will impact people of all persuasions, of all backgrounds, of all inclinations. But it is nevertheless, as you say, set against a backdrop of intense division, intense conflict. The context in Yemen is not well known. In fact, I think many fail to even recognize that it is a country mired by a civil war. For whatever reason, Yemen seems to be a blind spot in global consciousness when it comes to conflict and challenge, and yet it is set amid a region that gets a lot of attention. In order to kind of understand what is happening now, we have to to go back a bit in history. And there are a lot of places we could go. But just for simplicity, I think it's helpful to go back to the Arab Spring of 2011, because 
At that time, Yemen was a single unified country that had had a history of division, of conflict, of being multiple pieces that were put together. And in the aftermath of the Arab Spring, part of what occurred was a shakeup of leadership where the often referred to as being authoritarian former leader of Saleh was ousted in favor of Hadi, who came into power and was perceived as being weak. He was perceived as being vulnerable. And that vulnerability was challenged straight away. And by 2014, that challenge had led to a fraction uh, of the country where Ansar Allah, a movement of the Shia minority, sought to overtake the government and to oust from Sana'a the Hadi leadership. And they were very successful in getting support from those who were disaffected, including former supporters of, of Saleh. That would be a very simple narrative if we just said that there were these two competing groups, the Hadis and Ansar Allah, also referred to quite uh, colloquially as the Houthis. And so the Houthis versus Hadis is the simplistic narrative that tends to be told in order to, to make sense of what's going on. But it is far more complex, as you say. And part of that is that there are other elements within Yemen that have sought to gain independence, to gain traction. And so there's, there's a southern separatist movement. There are then different international actors who have come in and backed different elements within the country. And it has led to not just two, but many different parties, all competing for some kind of control. Since 2015, the area of Yemen off of which the FSO Safar sits has been under Houthi control. However, the infrastructure itself, and this is where complexity comes in, is actually owned to this day by CPOC, the Safar Exploration and Production Operation Company, CPOC. And CPOC, where are they? Who are they? They are a state-owned oil company of the Hadi government. Uh, and so what we have is Hadi government infrastructure and technically, therefore, Hadi oil on board, a vessel that is attached to a pipeline that goes not just to the coast, but all the way up to, to Marib, which is still in, in Hadi controlled area. So this sort of notion of two competing parties is actually centralized around the software where you see that, that sort of contrast between the Houthis and the Hadis epitomized. And what is very challenging about this is that the control of the area is necessary for any kind of movement or access. And so the conflict background or backdrop, as you say, is crucial to understanding why it is so difficult to resolve the seemingly solvable and indeed solvable, but, but challenging issue of the software. Adding to that complexity are the international equities, because since 2015, a Saudi-led coalition has supported the ousting of the Houthis. The UAE has backed certain elements within the country, uh, and Iran has supported the Houthis. And as a result, it is not just the Yemeni equities that are, are at interest and at stake. We have Andrew, an entire regional dynamic. The internationally recognized government is the Hadi government. That's that is correct. 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 And the coalition, the Saudi-led coalition, includes it's over it's ten countries, isn't it? So it includes European countries as well, which is where the European and the UK involvement in the conflict becomes very controversial. Correct, and 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 that has made it very difficult for any of the parties who are noticeably involved or have been involved 
to be perceived by anybody as an honest broker vis-a-vis this offer. In other words, if the UK or France or the United States came in to try to mediate this, they would not be perceived as a neutral party because of their involvement in the coalition and their history with backing certain elements. Similarly, other bits of the region have also made their positions quite clear. So the Emirates could not, for example, be in any way a mediator. And that has brought a a challenge because, as I said at the outset, this is not a political issue. This is a human issue. This is an environmental issue. But in order to resolve it, somebody has to be able to interact and engage with those that have competing equities and competing interests in order to, to come up with a solution. And that's what's made it challenging. And that's also what has made the UN the focal point for a lot of the negotiations. And the UN has had the the leading role in trying to resolve this. Unfortunately, they've been unsuccessful to date, but that is why they are seen as the party through which to, to try to address this. So in simple terms, what would it, to use your simplicity, what would it be that the Houthis need to do and what would it be that the Hadists need to do? The number one issue is getting the oil off of the FSO software. The software itself is dying. We've had two incidents where we've come very close to the catastrophic situation that that we're all trying to avoid. And there is an urgent need to prevent a spill. This is a single-hulled, quite old, decaying vessel whose operating systems have not worked since 2017. Many of the key safety measures just could not be brought back online at this point. And so repairing it is more or less out of the question. That would only slightly delay the potential catastrophe. So the goal is to get the oil off of the vessel. How easy is that to do? From an engineering standpoint, it's not really that difficult. This is something that there are plenty of firms around the world who are are more than competent to do. The challenge is, is not actually the physical mechanics of it. It's the permissions and access from a political and legal standpoint. And then it's the security and safety of that operation because it will take time. This is not something that will happen in a day. And that means that two things need to happen. One is there needs to be some kind of assurance through credible action that there are not mines around the area that could potentially disrupt the offloading operation and that there are no actors who would take action to attack it. So security is a sort of a a wild card in how this would unfold. But from an engineering standpoint, it's not that challenging. And where would you need these assurances come? Who is in a position to give these assurances? This is where the the Houthis have a particular role in that they are the ones who control the area and therefore they control the access and therefore they control the responsibility anyway for for security. They are also perceived by many, whether it's true or not, it's not for me to say, but they're perceived by many outside as being the ones who are also most challenging and the biggest risk for precipitating an attack during an operation. And the assurances and guarantees of of Houthi leadership would be needed in order to, to make anyone feel comfortable conducting an operation like this. Has there been any progress um, in achieving that? What's been the story so far? There's been a cyclical dance between the UN and the Yemeni elements that have precipitated a ongoing cycle of requesting 
access, being granted access, selecting a team to conduct an assessment, housing that team in a hotel in Djibouti, and then never getting on board. And so we've not actually seen any measurable progress on that front in the several years that I've been involved with this matter. And I don't have any great hopes that that cycle will change anytime soon. I'd love to be wrong about it, so don't get me wrong. I'm not. I'm not uh, hexing it in any way. I'm. I'm very uh, hopeful that that uh, we will find a, a resolution. But that particular approach of a, a UN-funded assessment of the software does not seem to be uh, gaining any traction. Where we have seen some interest is a proposal that that my team and I put forward to not just take off the oil or remove the software, but to to remove it and replace it. One of the things that I don't think has really entered the conversation sufficiently is the desire by particularly the Houthis that do control the area, but probably by all, to maintain some of the infrastructural options for the future. At some point, Yemen will hopefully no longer be in broiled in a conflict. And at some point, therefore, Yemen will be focused on having an economy that will support prosperity of its population. And that means that having infrastructure, preserving infrastructure is a priority. And the SAFR represents a major infrastructural asset that the government of Yemen and the Houthi leadership, I think both would like to maintain. And I think that had been lost for a while in the conversation focusing on the oil, because removing and selling the oil and scrapping the vessel didn't necessarily include doing things to preserve the infrastructure. And so what we've put forward is, rather than simply removing and selling the oil and and scrapping the vessel, let's actually preserve all the equities as they are, allow for the conflict to to be resolved by those who are working to resolve it, but neutralize the threat of a spill by replacing this offer like for like with a seaworthy vessel. Take away the threat of the catastrophic situation unfolding. And that that has caught some people's attention recently, and that that is what I think will need to happen in the interim, and regardless of what other approaches are, are taken, though, I think we also need to look at the difference between prevention and response. Prevention is trying to make sure the oil doesn't spill. And thus far, we've had no real tangible progress on that. And so we need to also be looking at response and response amid a pandemic, amid a conflict, amid a security situation where there could be mines. Just recently, we saw you know a vessel hitting a mine off of another coast of Yemen, off of Aden. And that really has highlighted the need for caution on this front. And so we need to respond as quickly as possible when a spill begins So the best time to put a response in place is actually before the spill does start. And if we wait to even start figuring out who and how we would do that until it is too late, there will be very little hope of even mitigating the catastrophe. And so we're looking as well at options for how the area around the software could be boomed with sufficient booming material in order to to contain a spill, and not just any spill, a spill the size of the cargo of the software, 1.14 million barrel spill is immense. And so, you know, a, a few meters of boom will not be enough. This is a significant booming operation. But the ability to, to put that into place now would at least give us the chance of mitigating some of the effects on desalination and port access and on ultimately the devastation of the marine environment. There have been suggestions that it's within the Hooters' interest to use this for leverage in negotiations. Have you seen any evidence of that in your work? 
I think the cycle indicates that the interests of the parties are perhaps not as simple as some have tried to make it um, to be just about the money. And the money picture itself is often used as the explanation for why there's not been progress. The money at stake is very low. 1.14 million barrels of, of Marib-like crude that's been sitting for five years, likely to have degraded to some degree and you know, trying to be sold amid a marketplace that is not exactly welcoming for crude of any kind, much less that with a bad history, you're looking at several tens of millions of dollars. You know, 44 million is, is sort of the, the highest threshold. More likely you're looking 20s or 30s. And so that that is often the explanation. But as you say, others will argue that it's about leverage. And I think that leverage is important, but understanding what that leverage means is also quite important. And I worked previously in the Balkans. And one of the problems of working in the Balkans was that outsiders would come in and arrive at the simplest explanation for why things were the way they were. And they never scratched the surface to find out really what the equities, what the interests were. And I think there's a danger of doing the exact same thing here. This is not a simplistic set of, of issues. We're not in a position to be able to explain everything with a couple of sentences of, of generalizations. And so I think simply saying that it's about leverage runs the risk of oversimplifying what that means. And going back to what I was saying before, I think we need to understand the desire of some to, to have a future, to have infrastructure. And so recognizing that, you know, a negotiating position that involves removing the software and removing potentially the pipeline uh, attached to it is perhaps not going to, to gain traction means that we can start looking a little bit more closely at what the actual interests are and try and resolve the situation. But fundamentally, there is a challenge, which is that no matter who you're talking to, whether it is the Houthis, the, the Hadi government, the Southern Separatists, the, the UN, or any of the other international actors, not everyone understands actual tangible fallout that would occur from this sort of a spill. And getting people to recognize the urgency of this particular matter and not seeing it just as sort of a, an environmental inconvenience is really quite difficult, but quite important. listening to CMEX podcast. I'm Charlotte Leslie and I'm talking to Dr. Ian Rolby about the dangers of the disintegrating oil tanker SFO Safa just off Yemen's coast. Ian, thank you. You've spoken about the importance of getting people to understand what the catastrophe would look like if, if this, if this um, tanker disintegrates and sheds its load. What can our listeners do? This is an issue that Many people would be surprised that they haven't heard more about in UK press and media. It's a massive environmental risk and a massive humanitarian risk. And we do hear about other humanitarian and environmental risks. What can people who are frustrated listening to this do? Is there anything that we can do here in the UK? Is there any way people can raise this? And also, is there anything further that people should read if they want to find out more about it? Absolutely. I think there are a lot of challenging situations around the world and prioritizing what we do about them is, is difficult. However, this one is not just about the region in which it sits. As I said, uh, the future of Red Sea coral is closely tied to the future of marine biodiversity, which is closely tied to the future of life on land. Our planet is experiencing plenty of challenges at the moment from a climate standpoint and from a human action standpoint. And 
this is a situation where we don't really want to find out what the full consequences of inaction would be. We saw in, in Beirut how massive that blast was. It was felt all the way in Cyprus. And that was a single blast. This is something that will be felt for generations. The area around where the Exxon Valdez spilled in 1989 still sees toxicity in the water uh, that has diminished its marine environment and diminished the quality of life on the coast ever since. But in this particular case of the Safar, we would see a diminishing uh, experience, not just for Yemen, not just for Saudi, not just for Jordan, not just for the entire Red Sea literal, um, but for uh, the entire world, because we would we would run the risk of a couple of things happening. First of all, losing that unique marine biodiversity. Second, seeing a, a shock to the economy in some way, if either the Suez Canal was closed or if shipping companies decided they did not want to go through the process of, of sailing through and cleaning the hulls of vessels that were transporting through the Red Sea and therefore picking up oil along the way. And that would mean rerouting global trade around the Cape of, of Good Hope. That is an expensive proposition at a time when our economy does not need any greater challenge. Furthermore, the loss of life would be catastrophic. We are running the risk of losing a generation in an entire country. And that is that is tragic to say the least, but it also will have years of consequence for security and stability, not just for Yemen and not just for the region, but globally, as we all take such an interest in global stability. And so if, if people are interested in doing something, the best thing that they can do is actually share the news about this and, and actually get some attention to the ears of those who, who have the ability to, to act. And there are options. There are potential creative solutions to this problem. But we need those with diplomatic acumen and with the position to be able to act to pursue such creative approaches. And I think we've tried and failed enough times with this cyclical process of trying to get a UN-backed assessment of the software. We are running the risk of falling afoul of the definition of insanity, whereby doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result produces uh, and, and actually epitomizes insanity. So let's not be insane. Let's be innovative. Let's be creative. And let's push those who can act, whether it's your MP, whether it's even a local official, to try to, to voice concern, to raise this awareness and to do something. And I remain optimistic because we are still at a position where we can both prevent this and in the case of not full prevention, uh, at least do something to respond to it. But in um, many the time cases, is running out. So in many cases, there isn't a practical solution. And it's also politically difficult. In this case, it sounds like there is a practical solution. But I say the only barrier to getting to it is politics. Is that correct? That is exactly right. This is a solvable problem. The primary challenge is people of all sorts. And so if we can kind of encourage all the people that can act to come together and recognize that this is not political. We can hopefully divorce this from the wider context of conflict and address it as a human concern. No one wins if this spills. No one wins. 
we don't need to figure out who wins if if they solve it. What we need to do is make sure that that we aren't in a position for all of us to lose. And so encouraging as many different creative options and solutions as possible is really important. Now, of course, there are laws. There are certain limitations on what we can do. We can't just show up and resolve it by force. That would be a breach of the territorial sovereignty and integrity of Yemen. But again, we should be able to appeal to humanity sufficiently to be able to get this particular situation resolved, unlike some others, which are intractable, which are too difficult. But this one is solvable. Dr. Ian Robbie, thank you very much. And I would encourage, and I'm sure you would as well, our listeners to share this podcast, bring awareness of what's going on off the coast of Yemen to more ears, and to raise it with anyone you feel may be able to make a difference. Dr. Ian Robbie, thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much. Thank you.